ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi, I'm James Valentine and welcome to Headroom, the Belief Series. I came to this view late, but maybe you've always realised this. Our actions, our responses, our view on the world is shaped by our values and our beliefs about how the world operates. If you're imbued with a spiritual belief, for example, then you will see God's hand at work everywhere, whomsoever that God may be. If you believe that people are not to be trusted, well then that's how you'll act. I've been in radio for 30 years, I've done thousands of media interviews, and I've never asked anybody what they believe. So I thought I'd start. I chose people for this series on a simple premise. Because of their life and work, I assume they must have beliefs and principles and insights about life that will be deeply held. I wanted to know what they were. Someone like Richard Feidler, host of Conversations on ABC Radio and Podcast. Well, I told him why I wanted him. Why right. me? Why, why me? <laughs> why you? Why me? I'm just here for collegiality. You know that, don't you? I, I knew you didn't really want to I'm do terrified. it. terrified. I was really curious. I thought, has Richard Feidler learnt an enormous amount from 15 years of talking to people, of five days a week of researching people to spend an hour with them? You know, what Richard must have beliefs and insights into humanity that, that, that have come from that. I've known Richard for years. We've lived kind of parallel lives. In the 80s, when he's in the wildly successful comedy troupe The Doug Anthony All-Stars, I'm playing in Australian rock bands like The Models. We both detoured into television and then both found our life's work in radio, ABC Local Radio specifically. He in Brisbane and me in Sydney. He began Conversations in 2006. It's broadcast daily and has become one of the best radio and podcast interview shows broadcast anywhere. He's also the author of four books of history on topics as diverse as Constantinople and the sagas of Iceland. So, have all these interviews, all of these stories and lives he's consumed, have they shaped him? Is there one that stayed with him? I remember talking to a restaurateur once, quite a famous one, and he'd been on the telly a lot, and he said the most interesting thing once. Sometimes the most unlikely people say the most interesting things. This wasn't fake modesty, but he said, I honestly conceive of myself as a servant. And I thought about that a lot. And I thought, I think that's why he's a happy man. I think the people I, I find who seem to have the most contented lives, not happy, happy mm. isn't quite the same thing, but who are at peace with themselves the most, conceive of themselves as servants. And, you know, in radio, in local radio, when we were brought into it, so much of what we were given as a kind of an ideology of radio was about, you know, how do we be of service to listeners? Mm -hmm. What's in it for the listener? What are we doing for the listeners? And I think that's good for us in broadcasting and it's good. It's a good enough ideology for anyone mm. because you never go to bed. I mean, I worked in commercial radio a little while and, and you go to bed at night going, oh, why am I doing this? What, what, what good am what That's use a very I? nice Audi, but why am I doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if Carl Sanderland's ever asked himself that no. question, but uh, nonetheless, I think I, 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 I really bothered me and, and the ABC is full of its frustrations as, as we both know, but mm. I, I never go to bed worrying What's the point of all this? Yeah, what, yeah. What, do I, what am I doing this yeah, yeah. Like you, you believe that your daily task, your job, your career should be something that's of service and provides personal satisfaction to yourself, not just 
a means to having the house and having a nice holiday every year. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. I mean, you know, you and I, again, would be doing probably different things if, if it was just all about money for us. But, you know, that's what some people some people like that, the riches mm. of, this, of this world. Yeah. I'm, I'm not being judgy about that. But I, I think I've always wanted something more than that if I could afford to have it. Uh, there have been times when I've had to do jobs which I don't particularly enjoy at all doing, but I just needed to bring the money in for the family. Mm. So, yes, that's that's a very large part of what, what I see as being part of the, the good life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me say at this point, my intention in this podcast is not to try to find out what are the right beliefs or how you should live your life. I simply want the people I talk to to tell me what their beliefs are. For Richard, that sense of daily satisfaction and purpose is important. For me too, but neither of us are suggesting that this is some essential truth. It's only right for us. Many others find deep satisfaction and purpose well beyond the job. We went on to discuss the good life. What is the good life, do you think? That's always the thing with the good life, is to find that balance between how you make time for yourself and what you owe to other people. I see myself, my, my family being of use to my family as being a large thing. Whether yeah. they want me to be of use to them is <laughs> another thing entirely. Uh, but that's a very large part of uh, uh, part of my life. And yeah. I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. I'm not saying that's altruistic. It's pleasurable. That's a, it's, a, it's, the, it's the, the joy of it for me. Yeah, yeah. Do you believe in altruism or is altruism always, in some ways... Self-serving. I think when people go down that rabbit hole, there's a little bit, again, a little bit of sanctimony behind it. Like, no, there is no such thing as altruism because if you are a, a saint of a, of a person and you're giving over so much of your time and yourself, clearly you're getting off on that. Therefore, there is no such thing. We're all ultimately selfish creatures, mm. um, propagators of our own selfish genes and all that. That's just a boring way to look at the world, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think it's just one of those, you know, sophisticated sophistry. Yes. Is that what I'm looking for? You know, it's a yes. sophistry. It's, it's a very interesting argument. You know, I like when Bob Geldof was doing Live Aid. He said, I don't care why they're here. Yeah, I don't mm. care why Phil Collins wants to fly back and forth as, yes. long, as long as they're doing it. Let's come back to the, the original question. Yeah. Emphasising the research, perhaps most people don't you know, realise this necessarily. I know what you do to be in that position to produce that hour, for that hour to be such a riveting conversation. You spend a lot of time studying people, studying the work that they've done. Has something come from that? Do you, do you do you think you've learned something about humanity, about what who people are? Yeah, I pick guests who are at a point in their lives. I think anyway, for those who are giving me their their personal life stories, I, I pick them at a point in their lives when they've got some kind of point of reflection and insight, when some something has sort of settled, when all the various catastrophes have happened, and they're not still in the middle of that going what the hell is going on and I'm, mm. I'm so distressed I can't make sense of it. They've arrived at a point of finding out something. And here's another little bit of un unlikely get, get guest wisdom. The late manager of In Excess, I had mm. him on the show. Chris Murphy. Chris Murphy. Mm. And he was really hyped up. He was kind of really nervous about being interviewed. And he talked about how his dad had died on an ice, I think playing ice hockey, I think it was, mm. when he was 14 or 15. And how it completely came right out of the blue. He wasn't ready for it, as you wouldn't be at that age, the loss of this this big, huge, lovely man in your life, your dad. And he said, I've never gotten over it. And he said, it's funny because people have always said to me, I should get over that. And he said, I don't see why you should ever get over anything. And again, I thought about that a long time and he's right. The idea we should get over things is really 
Oprah-esque, I yeah. think. We're always looking for that American thing, closure, so that we don't remain emotionally incontinent, that we move on to the next thing and and don't create, uh, don't don't ripple the, the 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 placid waters of of our own social circles. Yeah, it's interesting that isn't it? because it's not very dissimilar to the emotional attitude that was common in in my childhood, which was you're meant to bear up. Mm-hmm. Of things like closure is a bit the same. In a sense, you're not meant to bother anybody else with this, with your heavy emotions—the death of the parent, the death of a child, your own failure, or something. You know, you are not meant to bother them with that. How's he? How's he doing after his wife died? He's bearing up. Very he's bearing well. up. That's right. He's bearing up very, very well. well. Very well. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, though, I, I find kind of excessive emotional incontinence hard to be around as well. That's a bit look at me, look at me. Sometimes yeah. after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There, there's a balance there. So you've done it twice. There's the restaurateur mm, who said being a service to serve. That that struck you. And we never get over anything. Get, get over things from the very unlikely source of Chris Murphy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. Isn't that strange? Uh, and the other guy was George Columbaris. Right. I mean, he's very, these people are often known for their, let's say, for their uh, their, their, in, their in intensity towards their business intensity careers. Intensity business, so intensity things, to entertainment, so, yeah. So, so, yes, that's that's um, that's a surprise. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've learnt wisdom comes from unlikely quarters. That's right. Anyway, that's the third great lesson. Are we, are we writing this down? I know. That's right. Thankfully, yes. it's been recorded. Is yes. it being recorded? It's a new yes. Talmud that's been created here. <laughs> It's being yes. recorded, but is that more what it is for you? There's there's gems of wisdom that that, that, that come out sideways. Yes, yeah. I don't go looking for wisdom, and I mean sometimes you know, if people want to volunteer a philosophy that they have, that's that's well and good. But life is so messy, and this is probably mm. going to be a problem with our conversation now. There's so much mess to life, and aren't blurry edges to things, and part of that too is the distortion that's inherent in my radio program, which is to present someone's life story as a satisfying narrative arc. We like to hear stories in that form. They're always going to distort the record somewhat because we don't really live that way. It's just a great way of talking about it in an audio format, in radio or in a podcast. But you, you find that, you know, well, there's a beginning, there's a trajectory, this thing happens, more stuff happens, and then you eventually sort of arrive at some point of insight at the end of this process. But then I'll often find I'll f- find that guest five years later and they've got a completely different thing going on, <laughs> you know, something else completely different. Yeah. And they go, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I don't think that anymore. Yeah. And, oh, did and I and say that? No. Did I say that? <laughs> nah, nah, yeah. It is true, isn't it? We see our life in that way as well. See, if only I hadn't done that. You know, this this wouldn't have got there, but that's not actually how it goes. Do you think of life as chaotic? Not chaotic, but messy. So you can move the whole thing forward, but it's sort of like moving handfuls of spaghetti from <laughs> one space to another. <laughs> very slippery needles. And very slippery. And there's, tongs. and there's a foul trail of something behind it that's going to get a bit rancid as time goes yeah, by. Yeah. It's all a bit messy, but there is there is some momentum to it, of course, and it does have a shape to it, and sometimes those shapes become more discernible over time. So when you say, what's the shape? What are you describing there? The shape of one's one's life, shape the shape of, of events, the shape of of whatever is unfolding in, 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 in a person's life right, over time. Right. You see the patterns of your own behaviour? Yes, yes, yes. You do, do I think, yeah. yeah. Do you think you see human patterns? This is how we do things. This is the way mm. life is. Yeah, you do. I, I get a lot of that from um, – I, I, I married an uncommonly wise woman, Kim, my wife, who – I really don't think I'd be doing my show if I hadn't met Kim because yeah. she's she's one of those old heads. She even when I first met her and when we were twenty, she had a bit of an old wise head on her shoulders and is capable of seeing quite a lot in people, and in quite a forgiving way too. 
So she's not judgy and sanctimonious. She knows, you know, we're all made from crooked timber in this world. <laughs> and, um, and, and I like that so much about her too. And sometimes if, if we've been through a kind of a strange social situation, I'll say, what do you think was going on there? And she'll sort of hit, hit on it in a gentle kind of way. And I'll go, yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. And see, there's, there's to me a, a fundamental belief about life. It's messy. We're all made of crooked timber. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, there's a randomness to it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, a randomness, yes. Um, but we're, we're not powerless over our own futures. We, uh, we do make decisions. We do move from one place to the next, and that's largely an act of will, interacting with the environment around us and running against obstacles we, can't, we can or can't get over. So I'm not hearing that it's the volume of interviews and research that Richard has done. He's heard some kernels of truth and sense along the way that struck home, but life is messy like a pot of spaghetti. We are not powerless against the randomness of life, but we will strike obstacles that we can't get over. That's what you learn from living any life. But again, that's only Richard's truth. Many won't think that life is a bowl of slippery noodles. In these conversations, we're going to end up with lots of fundamental divides, I suppose. I think I will often clash with people who don't think the world is chaotic. No, no, it's controlled, and there's this, and they're in charge, and that should have happened, and this is the way it should have gone. You know, yeah, I'm, those I'm, people are my enemies, James, right. and I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, the, the people who have a very prescriptive idea of human nature like that and of what ought to happen tend to be utopian in their outlook. And, you know, as Spilan Kundera once said, you know, the author of The Unbearable Lines of Being, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, great Czech fiction author, he said, um, from time to time people have tr- attempted to set up a human utopia. And each time they do that, it's become necessary to build a small concentration camp at the side of it. Right. And over the time, the population of utopia gets smaller and the concentration camp gets larger and larger. Yeah. Yes, people with prescriptive ideologies based on uh, an idea of, a fundamentalist idea of human nature are quite dangerous people, I think, if they get anywhere near political power. Yeah. How do you how do you then bridge a divide there, that divide? What do you mean? Are you able to communicate, talk, be friendly? Is it? A, do you try to reform them, uh, bring them to your point of view? It, it often seems to me a bit intractable. It's like, well, no, I think the world yeah. is messy and chaotic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, I tend to find if I encounter that kind of didactic sort of person at... A party, and even as I'm saying this, I was thinking, "Have I ever been that person? Yeah. I hope not. I really, maybe in when I was younger, I don't know. Maybe I am now. I don't know. But um, if I encounter that person, even if it's me, I'll sort of do that Simpsons thing and say, uh, "I'm just going to go and stand over here for a while, yeah, <laughs> that thing, and yeah. move away. Yeah, I think yeah. because it's too boring. Yeah. Does that mean we believe? I'll tell you, we believe because I think we're, we're drifting the same territory. There are these divides that can't be crossed. If, you, if you're coming at things from, if you're looking at the world in two completely different ways and there's, they, they start from such different points, it's very hard to find well, common well, ground. I, I think sometimes um, if you're working with such people, they have all these gifts that people like myself don't have. Gifts for organisation, gifts, gifts for making categorical decisions quite quickly. Sometimes you're in a situation where you need people to make categorical decisions quickly, even if they're wrong decisions, mm-hmm. and to move the thing forward. You need those people in wartime very often. Mm. But ideally, you need, they sit as generals underneath a politician who has more of that other kind of temperament that I'm speaking of here, who uh, sort of gets the messiness and brokenness of people. But um, 
every once in a while reads they needs realizes they need a kind of a wind up toy of a human being right. to go out and sort this mess out. <laughs> Sometimes you, those people are very good at that sort of thing and can be of great assistance. Did your history reading tell you that's that's a common relationship? Oh, sure, what sure. you described there, the politician, the general, the wise king, yeah. and the the warrior. Yeah, I think uh, one, one example of that is uh, the way Franklin D. Roosevelt handled, ha- handled, and it does have to be called that, handled General Douglas MacArthur, perhaps the most brilliant general of the entire Second World War, a gift for strategy, an encyclopedic mind, uh, never forgot a thing, absorbed the topography of whatever battlescape he was going to send soldiers into, got famously low casualty levels as a result, helped lead the defeat of the Japanese in double-quick time along with Nimitz, and Roosevelt regarded him as one of the most dang- two most dangerous men in America. And his staff said, what are we going to do with this guy? Because he was a diva, a total prima donna with a fantastical view of himself as the only and most important person in the universe. In some ways, he was like a Trump, but with extreme competence. Yeah. Um, that doesn't get <laughs> me very say, far. What's the difference but, there? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I you see the you? thing, yes. yes. Uh, extremely capable, ex- intensely narcissistic, but mm. not without compassion. Right. I don't think Trump has much compassion in him. Mm. That has to be said that. Uh, and MacArthur, when he was when his staff told him this, that we have quite a dangerous man on our hands here who could run for the Republican nomination and run against you and maybe even beat you in a presidential election. Roosevelt would just say quietly, we must learn to use these people. Yeah. That was his thing. He knew how to flatter MacArthur. He knew how to box him in without MacArthur even realising it. So there are examples of that, like history. Richard Feidler is a historian, and what I admire so much about his work there is that it's so unexpected to me. For most Australian media types like myself and many others, if we delve into history, we do Australian history. Perhaps the big political movements, perhaps the wars, perhaps the quaint social customs of the olden days. Not Richard. I like to write about medieval and Renaissance scientists. I've often got their work in my book, and philosophers too. And the thing I find quite attractive about the way they often see the world, particularly like Johannes Kepler, who deduced the nature of planetary motion, is that the way they saw the world was, or the universe, was this extraordinarily complex puzzle, infinitely complex puzzle, hiding its secrets from you operating on a network of invisible correspondences that we can barely perceive. He's the author of Ghost Empire, a history of Constantinople, The Golden Maze, a biography of Prague, and Sagaland with his friend Kari Gislarsson, a book on the epic stories of Iceland. It's an impressive range. So, has this study of the world and its past shaped his beliefs? It definitely has led me to believe that notwithstanding the last few years being somewhat kind of alarming, the last six, seven, eight years, ten years in the world, we live in the best possible time hmm. of all times, in the best possible place, James. That's what And I you mean think. Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Australia in twenty twenty three. Yeah. I've travelled a lot. Yeah. I've I've read history and seen how bad things get. Mm. And how bad they get for very, very long periods of time. Mm. To live in a time of prosperity and democratic stability with protection for human rights uh, under rule of law, where travel is possible, mm. where all sorts of things are possible, where uh, I've got friends who grew up under totalitarian communism who, mm. who didn't have that, who lived in societies where 
trust were the, the government of the day was doing its best to exterminate trust between its citizens because once you have trust between friends, you can have a cabal that might want to overthrow the government. This is what people live through in China at the moment mm. and to some degree in Russia. I'm glad I don't live in those societies. Very, very glad. So, so yes, I think it's we live in an unusual moment that because it's been going on for a while in the societies we live in, and there's plenty that's wrong with the society we live in. I'm mm. well aware of that. I don't think we live in utopia. I don't believe in utopias. Mm. But uh, we can maybe say that the stability, prosperity and peace that we've enjoyed by and large is a normal state of human existence. And it just isn't. It just is not. Mm. Mm. So much of human history is, filled, of course, yeah. war, chaos, disaster, famine, plague, intense cruelty, subjugation, oppression, colonialism, all these things. We, we've lived in an unusual time. Yeah. And I think you and I are of an age that's been, where we've been unusually blessed. You know, like it's there. We're pretty. We're we're post Vietnam, so that that conflict didn't didn't strike us. We had a bit of free education there for a while, and you get those very peaceful years of the eighties and nineties through to nine eleven. Ah. That really, you know, not bad. Yes and no. I've yeah. mentioned this many times before, and but it's it's, it's kind of a fundamental to my the way I see the world is that when I came out of high school in the early eighties, I didn't think I'd live to see thirty. Hmm. It's forgotten that in the early 80s after Reagan got elected and Brezhnev was in his decrepitude and then followed by two more decrepit rulers in the Soviet Union and the window for uh, nuclear retaliation just got smaller and smaller. The time between retaliation got smaller and smaller. There were apocalyptic dramas going on the mm. TV like the British series Threads, the British mm. show Threads, which show what would happen in a nuclear exchange. I th- couldn't see a way out. I couldn't figure out who was going to untie or slash through that Gordian knot. I couldn't see a way in which there would not be catastrophic, large-scale, massive exchange of nuclear weapons between the US and its allies and the Soviet Union Mm. that would render the whole globe uninhabitable. I can remember having conversations in the refectory at ANU when I was a uni student where we were saying, well, so we we just become alerted to the idea of the concept of the nuclear winter. For a while we thought, oh, we might escape that in Australia. We might miss out on the worst of that. Scientists warned us that such would be the dust cloud and and stuff that would would be thrown up into the atmosphere. There'd be a a, a nuclear winter. All the world's crops would fail. We'd all die of starvation at some point. So this was the early 80s. This is 1981, 82, 83. Mm. And this is a belief you fervently hold at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. That's it. We're doomed. Yes, yes. I just couldn't see rationally a way out of it. And then... Gorbachev arrived, found a willing partner in Reagan, as it turned out. He surprised us all with that Mm. and undid the tensions of the Cold War. That's why 1989 was such a joyous year for me because it felt, being in Prague during its Velvet Revolution, I felt I was getting my future back. I've been laughing so much through that, mainly just the contrast between you and I in the same years. You were paying attention. I so wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Richard's comedy troupe, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, was deeply and acerbically political. I was blurting out bluesy sax riffs with rock bands. I often wonder whether a study of history leads you to see see that, you know, human beings have behaved in, 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 in exactly the same way for thousands of years. Yes, yes. And this is a squishy politician's answer. Yes and no, yeah, James. Yeah. Yes Let and me no. answer that this way. Um, it, it's sometimes said about 
the Romans, the ancient Romans, and I think this is true, that we can recognise about 90% of ourselves in the ancient Romans. There's plenty of literature of the time of ancient Rome. We know what people said and thought and did. We know a lot about what they said and thought and did, and we can recognise 90% of ourselves in Mm. them. Like us, they were interested in their careers. They were interested in attracting, uh, particularly the men, honour to themselves. Uh, They protected their families. They fell in love. They wanted to travel. They liked money. They liked food. They liked all those things that we all all like. But the 10% that's different is just like this almost unbridgeable gap. So your sense of, of history is to look and go, yes, yes, of course, a lot of our fundamental urges are the yes. same, so we're going to be the same. But that 10% different, it's a bit like that 1% of DNA in the chimp. Yes. It's, it means a lot. It means a lot. Yeah. And also slavery, their attitude to slavery. Yeah. Most of the time we, we understand Romans thought of their slaves and treated them like kind of like with the way we treat our pets, mm-hmm. with affection, um, indulgence perhaps. Mm. We'd hear them give us, they'd hear slaves, you know, give them a bit of cheeky advice every once in a while and go, oh, well, oh, that's a bit much, but oh, whatever. Mm. But there's also like, you know, yeah. you can have sex with whoever you want as a slave at, at any time. And, of course, there were slaves working legions of them in, in mines in Spain, which yeah. would never see the light of day. Is there a spiritual belief? Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely, yeah. Are you happy to describe that? What's your what's your spiritual belief? It's hard to talk about this because it's um, it's very easy to wander into something that's vulgar or new agey or mm. something like that. Strangely enough, over the year, uh, uh, over all this time, if I've ever had a conversation that approaches a discussion along those lines, it's with, oddly enough, Nick Cave. He's recently put out a book with his friend, the journalist, Sean O'Hagan, where they talked about things that really matter to Nick right now, things that are concerning him after the death of his two sons, Mm. uh, which, of course, is death, absence, presence of those people who die, who still linger as ghosts that might be real or metaphorical or just entirely within one's own head. Nick's close reading of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, all those sort of things. And and it it kind of works as a dialectic because Sean's, I'm pretty sure, is an atheist. Mm. And very amusingly at the beginning of it, um, Nick talks about his song Breathless, which is really, I think, is a hymn that could be sung in church today. And Sean was really shocked. He said... If I'd have known it was like a sort of a, a praise God song, I never would have played it at my wedding. He said. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt I I, I feel uh, like I'm on the same page as Nick with a, a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who's always lingering outside a church. Don't much enjoy being inside them. I went to church a fair bit mm-hmm. in my um, childhood and teens. Not coerced at all. Never found it horrible. Mm-hmm. Don't particularly enjoy a service these days. Yeah. Although, having said that, I think Christian Orthodox service is the closest thing I've ever had to a, a kind of a sublime encounter with mm. with the Christian liturgy. I, I found that in an Orthodox church in Paris. I just wandered into. I thought it was a Thursday evening, and I thought they won't be doing anything. And so I walked in, and, and a full-on service was taking place mm. with with two cantors, and the whole liturgy is, is sung, and it, it was just oh, it's wonderful. It was just wonderful. So I, 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 I'm full of uncertainty about what it is, but mm. um, 
Mm. It's, the, it's the thing that is sort of... But you know it's there. Uh, it feels as though it's there. It's there's an something there. Something. You're not quite sure. Yes. It's not defined and it's not. there's no institution that's defining it for you. It's it's the thing I've always... It's the reason why I've always had a kind of um, soft spot for s- some surrealist poets. Like there's a, a Czech surrealist poet called Yaroslav Seifert and he had this wonderful poem, which I'm going to quote for you now for page, which mm. I brought with me here. And... To have written such a thing in Prague makes perfect sense to me. He wrote, Keyholes are glittering in the sky, and when a cloud covers them, somebody's hand is on the doorknob, and the eye, which had hoped to see a mystery, gazes in vain. I wouldn't mind opening that door, except I don't know which, and then I fear what I might find. I just felt I knew exactly what he was talking Mm. about when he wrote that. I feel very comfortable with that. That makes sense. I don't think you could spend so much time with the medieval, with the ancient world as Richard does, and be cold to the possibility of something beyond. I could get him talking on that, but there were no-go areas. Is there anything in the modern world that you believe is kind of ghastly, killing us, anything in particular? You know, do you, you were sort of like, oh, that's it, TikTok is the end of it all. Of course there are. <laughs> Every, so much of it, James. Damn if I'm going to tell you. Come on. I, if I tell you, I'm going to just be like, old man shakes his fist at cloud. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do, you know how, do you know how interested people are in thinking of my sort of mm. mordant reflections of what I don't like <laughs> about modernity and modern politics yeah. and what millennials say all the time? Yeah. No, they're not. Oh, I was, but I gather we might need a whole other episode. Richard Father, thank you so much. Thank you for being so frank, so open. James, you have been, as Kafka would have said, an axe for the frozen sea inside of me. Of course, he finished with Kafka. A wonderful discussion and a really perfect first episode. It's that kind of frankness, depth and openness I hope to achieve here in the Belief series. Next episode, you'll hear from historian Claire Wright, Professor of History at La Trobe University and author of the prize-winning The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. I'll tell you what I don't believe, having studied history. I don't believe that the value of studying history is so that we won't make the mistakes of the past all over again. That's often something that's, you know, considered to be the value of a a history education or an interest in history. We're doomed to repeat. I think that that is rubbish. We will make mistakes over and over again because we are mere puny humans. That's Professor Claire Wright. Future episodes will include discussions with film director George Miller, writer, artist Sean Tan and musician William Barton. I hope you like this so much you're still listening and I hope you'll go onto the ABC Listen app, press the heart and subscribe. I'm James Valentine. This podcast was written and produced by myself with Grant Walter and Chloe McKenzie. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Conversations. You go into a psychiatric hospital. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Because you can no longer function. Someone who's seen and done remarkable things. Who are all these crazy people? And it takes a while to realise you're one of them. Just because people are not completely sane doesn't mean they can't help you. Follow on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.